How's it going, everybody? As always, I'm Stu Blackwell, your host here on the Warrior Legacy Podcast, and I hope that all of you are enjoying this show as much as I am. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit. You know, as of late, we've been focusing on, you know, the journey of personal development that I'm currently on and how my life prior to has led me to this point. But in this episode, I'm going to dig into some big personalities and some great men that I haven't mentioned before and focused on their impact, not just on me, but on others around them. And it's going to lead us into a multiple episode warrior case study over the next few weeks that will relate some of the most prominent warfighters in history directly to our times and the challenges that we face every day. This phase of the podcast has been months in the making, and I can't wait to find out what all of you take away from it and how it helps you get to wherever it is that you want to go. So let's roll the ad and let's dig into the juicy stuff on sight. So we begin today with the story of John Boyd, arguably the greatest fighter pilot of all time. Now, to all of our regular listeners out there, if you're wondering why I'm choosing to talk about a fighter pilot, I promise you it's going to make perfect sense by the end of this thing. So stay with me. But a brief history. So John Boyd was a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot that began his career in the 1950s during the Korean War. And throughout that campaign, he achieved unparalleled success in aerial combat, flying the F-86 Sabre against communist air forces. Now, his outstanding reputation isn't limited to that. Boyd would go on to teach his methods for many years to come and also to aid in the design of several new fighter jets that are still in service today. Boyd's secret was not only the mastery of practical aviation skills, but more importantly, it was his understanding of the mental process through which to apply those skills. The implication, and frankly the truth of it, is that Boyd knew that the mind, the man himself, was the deadliest weapon of all and recognized that knowing how to learn was more important than talent. Now, we typically equate these types of accomplishments and you know long-term impact to a figure that has a lot of traditional success. You know, the CEO, the world-renowned celebrity, the rich and famous, or you know, in Boyd's case, as a serviceman, a high-ranking officer, probably you know, a general or a service head. But Boyd was repeatedly denied promotion because he valued virtue and achievement over reputation and recognition. As the saying goes, you can't put a price on being able to look at yourself in the mirror. Now, despite the fact that most of his superior officers hated him, they couldn't deny his extraordinary combat record. So, he was appointed to positions where he could teach air combat theory to young pilots. But Boyd saw it as more than that. One of his favorite exercises was to write on a chalkboard the terms duty, honor, and country. Then he would cross those terms out and, moving to the other side, write pride, power, and greed. See, Boyd understood that while the military institution is meant to operate on the first set of virtues, just like any other organization, human nature subjects it to the second set of terms or devices. John Boyd was known, he was known for wanting to accomplish great things to make a truly positive impact on people without any thought of fame or traditional success. The evidence lies in the fact that despite how his teaching 
an example helped countless servicemen, he was never allowed to promote beyond colonel because he frequently told his quote-unquote superiors what they needed to hear and what he felt was right instead of playing patsy in order to advance his career. Boyd didn't care about rank. He cared about producing men that could win in air combat. The mental process by which he would engage and win in the sky was known as OODA loop, which is an acronym for observe, orient, decide, act, and then loop back to the beginning and do it all over again. Now, he had proven that doing it continuously and faster than the enemy was one of the most crucial elements of the process because it enabled him to, to mentally outcycle his opponents and win over and over again. He believed in it so strongly and invested so much into it that his teachings have become universal. Case in point, as a young infantryman in 2007, myself and my peers were taught the Oodaloop process as it pertained to us on the ground. Our team leaders designed countless training scenarios based on you know, the, the types of moral and tactical dilemmas that characterized the war on terror for grunts. The seemingly normal patrol interrupted by a, you know, a random shooter, the child holding a hand grenade, or a female suicide bomber that explodes a split second before an enemy ambush, shatters the environment with machine gun fire, and so on and so on. They adapted Boyd's process to this reality of our war by observing our reactions at every stage of each exercise to reinforce the fact that the mind was the most important weapon of all. So let's dig into this a bit. We'll use a simple example. Picture yourself patrolling through the cramped confines of an Afghan village. You're surrounded by mud brick huts, you know, lining a crooked dirt trail that appears as if a child has irregularly placed them like his favorite Lego set. You walk in a dispersed formation, creeping down the path with your squad members, and you're visually scanning everything for indicators of danger. Trip wires along the narrow road, explosives in a pile of trash, weird mannerisms of the locals in a nearby market. You know, whether or not that market is crowded, or if the people suddenly hurry away when they see your formation approach. You pay attention to where their hands are and what they're doing or if, they're, if they produce a cellular phone because, well, technology has mostly left this place behind. Cell phones typically indicate that a simply crude and deadly explosive is going to detonate almost instantly. Now, your mind is racing a mile a minute because this process of observing and evaluating potential threats is happening multiple times with every step that you take. Suddenly, a cloaked figure leans out of a tiny mud brick hut 10 feet away and levels a rifle at you before you fire half a magazine of bullets into his chest and face. Before the body crumples to the ground, void of life, your eyes are already scanning everything around you again to detect additional threats. Does he have friends that are so violently inclined? Was it a distraction or something bigger or merely the opening act of a violently coordinated larger attack? Is there an improvised explosive device nearby? See, John Boyd's OODA loop in this particular case works like this. You observe the shooter in your peripheral vision and orient on them by driving your eyes and your weapon to them. 
As this is happening, your brain decides whether or not to kill them using the judgment that you've cultivated in training, driven by the infantry values. Confirming that they are indeed a threat, your brain sends the signals to your body to act. Your hand toggles the safety of your rifle as you apply your hard-earned marksmanship fundamentals in a nanosecond to eliminate that threat. And then your eyes are bouncing to the other doorways and alleys, looking for the next shooter or the IED or any number of potential dangers. That's the loop. This scenario and similar ones happen countless times in the war on terror to countless people. And all of this happens in such a compressed time frame that it takes days after to slow down enough to analyze it in the detail that I've just provided. Now, consider that you know most deployments were seven months for us and about a year for the army. And we're actively engaging forces nearly every day for the first five months, sometimes multiple times a day in our case. The point is that the pace and the character of an entire deployment overall can prevent a man from being able to mentally process individual engagements until they return home months later. That's why it can take up to several years before we assess what we've actually done in detail. Boyd's mental process has saved thousands of American fighters on land and in the air because he answered the critical question that he often posed to junior officers. Do you want to be somebody or do something? You see, he could have watered down his teachings or outright ignored them and ridden his stellar combat record to the heights of military power and prestige. But he would have hated himself. And many of the men that benefited from his example, including me, would have been sent to an early grave without the mental ability required to thrive in the murky, gray, and messy environment that characterizes war. Do you want to be somebody or do something? As I ask myself this question, I'm reminded of the men that have impressed upon me the virtues that I hold dear and, and strive to practice every day. You know, I think about the historical figures, the titans like Boyd and Alexander and Hannibal. Zach Walters and my first team leaders, you know, they come to mind and how they taught me to process and to learn. And I go even further and examine the foundation that I had prior to enlisting. I look at my own lineage. My paternal grandfather served on the USS Wisconsin during the Korean War. After his passing, you know, Grandma married a man who, who lied about his age many years before so he could join the Army during World War II at 15. And neither of them spoke very much about their service, but the fact that they went to such lengths based solely on conviction, that stuck with me. But it's my father who speaks to me both directly and through his example that stands apart from all of them. In 2011, when I came home from Afghanistan, he sat down with me in the hotel lobby, and we had a conversation. And he didn't speak much, but uh, you know, he, asked, he asked a few questions, and he uh, wasn't shocked by any answer that I gave. He just listened. His demeanor portrayed a man who genuinely wanted to know the person he was speaking to. There was no coddling or sympathy, just curiosity and interest. He didn't treat me as if I was broken or destroyed or 
somehow diminished and in need of repair. He simply wanted to observe the monumental changes that had taken place in his youngest boy. He treated me as a man with a loving tone and, and a, a comportment that only a true father can convey. And as I grow farther removed from that conversation and deeper into fatherhood myself, you know, I think back to who my dad was while I grew up. And I notice the seasonal changes of fatherhood through him. You know, my paternal memories are not, they're not of him disciplining me out of anger. You know, the few general instances of frustration I remember from him stand out only because of their rarity. He provided an example of extraordinary work ethic and discipline that was driven by a deep, uncompromising dedication to family. My dad worked his ass off consistently to provide a life that afforded us opportunity for development over comfort. And when he wasn't working, his time was spent one of two ways. It was either on us or on improving our home. My oldest, Alexander, has this, <laughs> this insatiable curiosity curiosity about everything that I did as an infantryman. He wants to know it all, you know, not, not just the typical stuff about, you know, the guns and the places and, but he wants to know about like the tactics and the people, everything relating to how the intangible affects the way that a man fights, both as an individual and in a team. And as I recall that conversation that I had with my dad 13 years ago, fresh off the plane from Afghanistan, I wonder about his experience during our time at war. And for Mother's Day this year, I did my best to examine that of my wife and my mother, which is the episode that I'm most proud of. So do yourself a favor and go back and give that one a listen. I dare you to do it with your wife or your mother. Let me know how it goes. But naturally this week, it dawned on me to center this episode on fathers in light of the holiday. And... As I'm explaining things to my boys and I'm trying to gauge their perception of my words and, and how they see me live my life day in and day out, I can't help but be arrested by several hard questions. Am I leading them to their death through the way that I educate them about war? What if my example, well-intentioned though it may be, is in fact the mechanism of their ruin? What if I'm doing everything wrong? You know, what if years from now, instead of welcoming my sons home from the crucible of combat, just astounded by the men that they have become and humbled by their achievements, I find myself standing behind my sobbing wife as she cradles a folded flag, trying desperately to cling to the memories of one or even both of our boys whose lives have been ended far too early. It paralyzes me. I wrestle with it. I put it out of my mind and I forge ahead trying to instill in them these, these qualities that, that they would need to thrive in the most arduous of environments that, that man can produce. And I mean, hey, after all, it may just play out that neither one of them ever even wears a uniform, much less goes to war. But still, the thought surfaces from time to time, always unwelcome. Until I remember my father, you know, who, 
who lived his life with character that I've never seen anywhere else and, and teaching that I still learn from. He wasn't hamstrung by the possibilities of things beyond his control or concerned with the trappings of life that would fade at the first sign of struggle or, or in the aftermath of tragedy. Dad lived that time with all of us, even amidst the constant pressures that come with being a leader. No man, no father goes through life free of doubt. But there's not a single time that I can remember where I knew he was fearful or unsure. He exhibited these qualities of, of discipline and compassion. And, and as we grew, he grew with us. And now our conversations have, have changed, of course, over the years from, you know, from the exciting experience of a football game or an awesome action movie to, you know, how to conduct yourself, what is right versus what is easy, and now how to lead, how to teach, how to be the best husband and father that I can be. And no matter how lost or fearful I may feel about anything, I know that I have him in my corner. He's the man that's responsible for developing my confidence and showing me how to move forward in life. And also, just as importantly, how to actually enjoy it with the ones who matter most. Is there any greater gift that a father can give his children? Now, I'm an eager student of, you know, the great conquerors in history. And at this stage of my life, being a dad, I, I find myself incredibly curious about the fathers that they had. In particular, um, you know, Philip II of Macedon, the man who sired Alexander the Great. And, and I say sired, quote unquote, because, uh, you know, dis despite his, his glorious achievements on the battlefield and, you know, as a diplomat, that literally shaped the world. As a father, he really didn't do much of anything right. Um, you know, his example provided the practical skills and the leadership acumen that Alexander needed. But Philip was cruel. He was unfaithful. He was barbaric. And he was beyond egotistical. As a father, the, the teachings that he extended to Alexander were done so with the sole intention of shaping him into a lesser image of himself. So that even in death, at the expense of his own son's legacy and happiness, he could be remembered by history as superior. Now Alexander, though much greater than, than Philip in every capacity, fell prey to the same ego that his father did. And in the end, it destroyed everything that they had built after they died. Alexander and Philip certainly did great things, but their primary aim was to be somebody. My father was never concerned with being anyone that the world would, would know or, you know, accruing fame or material comforts. His passion, his purpose, his wholehearted pursuit in life was to do something that would impact the people that he loved dearly. And he did so day in and day out with accountability, encouragement, and example. And now I know that some of you were not as, as fortunate as I to have a father figure such as this. So I'll remind you of a very real and sobering yet encouraging fact. If you didn't have a true father, a man of the caliber that I have, 
that doesn't mean that you are not deserving of one. And it damn sure doesn't mean that that absence or that poor example has to continue on to your children. It's our duty as fathers to provide the proper example to our children and to develop their spirit, their confidence. It's also our greatest joy. There's absolutely nothing that compares to it. The only things that can shape a man into the best version of himself outside of of struggle and hardship and adversity are husbandry and fatherhood. And you know what? It wasn't too long ago that I would see these these memes about these little posts on the internet and stuff about men being quote-unquote kings. Now, I'm not sure if they're they're still out there or not, but they came in all shapes and, and sizes. And the general message was to, you know, not settle for circumstances and people in your life just because, you know, you're some kind of bright, beautiful, sunshiny star that deserves the best out of everything and from everybody just because. You know, it's the type of thing that's enjoyed by like, uh, you know, the dad that you see that sits on the sidelines of a kid, of his kid's soccer game or, or his wrestling match and yells at them to do better, you know, through the excessively gelatinous dad bod that they've accrued over the years of entitlement and laziness. This is the guy that loves the phrase, quote-unquote, back in my day, as he talks about, like, almost everything, you know, with this, this false sense of superiority. See, here's the problem with that, you know, you're a king message, quote-unquote. is isn't grounded in reality. Each of us deserves exactly what we get out of life. Because we get out of it what we put into it. Just like dad taught me. We can't control what life gives us. But we are 100% responsible for the mentality the mentality that we receive those circumstances with. And what we make our world into. So I'll leave you with a counter definition. One that is firmly grounded in reality. And describes my father much better than I ever could. And we go back to to the book that I consider to be a a priceless treasure, Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, which every man and boy should read multiple times in life. This is the definition of a king as I believe it, and it is what all of us should strive to be as men. And I've seen this from my father growing up. A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry, nor sleep when they stand at watch upon the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear, nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pains he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of those he leads, but provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. A king does not expend his substance to enslave men, but by his conduct and example makes them free. Take that definition forward with you. Take the example of John Boyd and ask the same question to yourself regularly. Do you want to be somebody or do something? 
If you're getting something out of this, if this is helping you to hear these words and it's a worthy way to spend your time, do me a solid. Write a quick review. Hell, even if you think it's garbage and serves no purpose at all, write one anyway and tell me what it's missing. Tell me how I suck. You're not going to hurt my feelings, I promise. But for the time being, enjoy your Father's Day, everyone. All right? Be the best one that you can be for your kids. And let me know how you do it, too, so that I can get better at it, so that I can learn. And as always, get savage and stay savage.